Hello, and thank you for listening to She Speaks Volumes, a primer for 500 years of feminist writings. This is the third and final episode on anarchist Emma Goldman. Called the most dangerous woman in America, Emma Goldman is arguably one of the most interesting and influential feminists of the modern era. She was a teacher, lecturer, writer, and huge activist. The first of the Emma Goldman episodes was an excerpt from her autobiography, Living My Life, Volume 1. In two, I read an excerpt from her essay, Anarchy, What Does It Stand For? Anarchy, and had an interview with anarchist and professor Ruth Kinna. You can listen to both of those episodes on your favorite podcast player or on the feralculturelab.com website. This reading is from volume two of her autobiography. It was difficult to narrow down a reading for this episode. Volume two covers an intense period of time, not only in Emma Goldman's life, but in global history. She had a wide breadth of experience and first-hand knowledge and participation in events that shaped post-war America, Russia, and Europe. I hope the reading I have selected will inspire you to read Living My Life, both Volume 1 and Volume 2. It is well worth the commitment. This is an excerpt from Living My Life, Volume 2, Chapter 43. The conflagration in Europe was spreading. Already six countries had been swept by it. America was also beginning to catch fire. The jingo and military cliques were growing restive. Sixteen months of war, they cried, and our country is still keeping aloof. The clamor for preparedness began, people joining in, who but yesterday waxed hot against the atrocities of organized slaughter. The situation called for more energetic anti-war agitation. It became doubly necessary when we learned of the attitude of Peter Kropotkin. Rumors had been filtering through from England that Peter had declared himself in favor of the war. We ridiculed the idea, certain that it was a newspaper fabrication to charge our grand old man with pro-war sentiments. Kropotkin, the anarchist, humanitarian, and gentlest of beings. It was preposterous to believe that he could favor the European Holocaust. But presently, we were informed that Kropotkin had taken sides with the Allies, defending them with the same vehemence that the Heckels and the Hauptmanns were championing their fatherland. He was justifying all measures to crush the Prussian menace, as those in the opposite camp were urging the destruction of the Allies. It was a staggering blow to our movement, and especially to those of us who knew and loved Peter. But our devotion to our teacher and our affection for him could not alter our convictions, nor change our attitude to the war as a struggle of financial and economic interests foreign to the worker and as the most destructive factor of what is vital and worthwhile in the world. We determined to repudiate Peter's stand. Unfortunately, we were not alone in this. Many others felt as we did, distressing as it was to turn against the man who had for so long been our inspiration. Enrico Malatesta showed far greater understanding and consistency than Peter, and with him were Rudolf Rocker, Alexander Shapiro, Thomas H. Keel, and other native and Jewish-speaking anarchists in Great Britain. 
In France, Sebastian Faure, A. Armand, and members of the anarchist and syndicalist movements. In Holland, Domelat Neuenhaus and his co-workers maintained a firm attitude against the wholesale murder. In Germany, Gustav Landauer, Eric Muscham, Fritz Otter, Fritz Kotter, and scores of other comrades retained their senses. To be sure, we were but a handful in comparison with the war-drunk millions, but we succeeded in circulating throughout the world the manifesto issued by our international bureau, and we increased our energies at home to expose the true nature of militarism. Our first step was the publication in Mother Earth of Peter Kropotkin's pamphlet on capitalism and war, embodying a logical and convincing refutation of his new position. In numerous meetings and protests, we pointed out the character, significance, and effects of war. My lecture on preparedness showed that readiness, far from assuring peace, has at all times and in all countries been instrumental in precipitating armed conflict. The lecture was repeatedly delivered before large and representative audiences and it was among the first warnings in America against the military conspiracy behind the protestations of peace. Our people in the States were awakening to the growing danger, and demands for speakers and for literature began pouring into our office from every part of the country. We were not rich in good English agitators, but the situation was urgent, and I was continuously busy filling the gap. I went about the country, speaking almost every evening, my days occupied with numerous calls on my time and energy. At last, even my unusual powers of endurance gave way. Returning to New York after a lecture in Cleveland, I was taken ill with the grip. I was too ill to be transferred to a hospital. After I had spent two weeks in bed, the physician in charge ordered me taken to a decent hotel room, my own quarters lacking all comforts. On my arrival at the hotel, I was too weak to register, and Stella, my niece, wrote my name in the guest book. The clerk looked at it, and then retired to an inner office. He returned to say that a mistake had been made. There was no vacant room for me in that place. It was a cold and grey day, the rain coming down in torrents, but I was compelled to return to my old quarters. The incident resulted in strong protest in the press. One communication in particular attracted my attention. It was a long and caustic letter upbraiding the hotel people for their inhumanity to a patient. The statement, signed Harry Weinberger, attorney at law, New York, was by a man I did not know personally, but whose name I had heard mentioned as that of an active single taxer and a member of the Brooklyn Philosophical Society. In the meantime, Matthew Schmidt had been sacrificed to the vengeance of the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, the Los Angeles Times, and the state of California. One of the main witnesses against him was Donald Vos. In open court, face to face with his victim, he admitted to being in the employ of Detective William J. Burns. As his agent, Vos had ferreted out the whereabouts of David Kaplan. He enjoyed the hospitality of the latter for two weeks gained his confidence, and learned that Schmidt was somewhere in New York. Then he was ordered east by Burns, instructed to frequent anarchist circles, and be on the alert for the first chance to reach Matthew Schmidt. On the witness stand, Vos boasted that the prisoner at the bar had confessed his guilt to him, 
Schmidt was convicted, the jury recommending imprisonment for life. There was no more reason for withholding the publication of what I considered Donald Vosa's perfidy. The January 1916 issue of Mother Earth contained the too-long-delayed article about him. Gertie Vos stood by her son. I understood her maternal feeling, but in my estimation it did not excuse a rebel of thirty years standing. I never wanted to see her again. Conviction did not break the strong spirit of Matthew A. Schmidt or influence his faith in the ideals for which he was to be buried for the rest of his life. His statement in court, setting forth the causes behind the social war, was illuminating in its clarity, simplicity, and courage. Though facing a life sentence, he did not lose his rich humor. In the midst of his recital of the real facts in the case, he turned to the jury with the remark, Let me ask you, gentlemen, do you believe a man like Donald Vos? You wouldn't whip your dog on the testimony of such a creature. No honest man would. Any man who would believe Vos would not deserve to have a dog. Interest in our ideas was growing throughout the country. New anarchist publications began to appear. Revolt in New York with Hippolyte Havel as its editor, The Alarm in Chicago, issued by a local group of comrades, and The Blast in San Francisco, with Sasha and Fitzy at its head. Directly or indirectly, I was connected with all of them. It was, however, The Blast that was closest to my heart. Sasha had always wanted a forum from which to speak to the masses, an anarchist weekly labor paper to arouse the workers to conscious revolutionary activity. His fighting spirit and able pen were enough to assure the blast vitality and courage. The cooperation of Robert Minor, the powerful cartoonist, added much to the value of the publication. Robert Minor had wandered far since the days when I first met him in St. Louis. He had definitely broken with the milk-and-water brand of socialism and had given up a lucrative position on the New York world for a $25-a-week job on the Socialist Daily Call. This will free me, he once told me, from making cartoons that show the blessings of the capitalist regime and injure the cause of labor. In the course of time, Bob had developed into a revolutionist and subsequently into an anarchist. He devoted his energies and abilities to our movement. Mother Earth, Revolt, and The Blast were considerably strengthened by his trenchant brush and pen. From Philadelphia, Washington, and Pittsburgh came calls for a series of lectures to extend over several months. The initiatives of our comrades was a satisfying and stimulating sign. Such a venture had never before been tried with one speaker but our friends were eager to attempt it. I realized the strain it would involve to travel continually from town to town, lecture every evening, then rush back to speak at my Friday and Sunday meetings in New York, but I welcomed the opportunity to awaken interest in the Los Angeles case, agitate against the war, and help circulate our various publications. My English lectures in Philadelphia were hardly worth the weekly effort. They were poorly attended, the few who did come were sluggish and inert, like the social atmosphere in the city of brotherly love. There were only two persons whose friendship recompensed me for the otherwise dreary experience, Harry Boland and Horace Trouble. 
Harry was an old devotee and always generously helpful in every struggle I made. Horace Trouble I had first met at a Walt Whitman dinner in 1903. He had impressed me as the outstanding personality among the Whitmanites. I enjoyed the hours spent in his sanctum, filled with Whitman material and books, as well as with the files of his own unique paper, The Conservator. Most interesting were his reminiscences of the good grey poet, whose latter years of life Horace had shared. I got more from him of Walt than from any biographer I had read, and I also got much of Horace Trouble, who revealed himself and his own humanity in his talks about his beloved poet. Another man brought close to me by Horace was Eugene V. Debs. I had met him previously on several occasions and had clashed swords with him in a friendly way over our political differences. But I knew little of his real personality. Horace, an intimate friend of Debs's, made him vibrant to me in the heights and depths of his character. The comradeship I felt for Horace ripened into a beautiful friendship during my visits to Philadelphia. The city's empty boast of brotherly love was redeemed by none so much as by Horace Trouble, whose love embraced mankind. Results in Washington, D.C. surprised everybody, and, most of all, our active workers, Lillian Kislyak and her father. Lillian had for years lived in the capital, but had always been skeptical about the success of lectures in her city, and particularly about having two a week. It was her enthusiasm for our ideas, however, that had induced her to undertake the task. The Pittsburgh arrangements were in charge of our very able friend Jacob Margulis, who was assisted by young American comrades, among them Grace Lone, very vivid and intense, her husband Tom, and his brother Walter. The Lones were most refreshing by their genuineness and zeal, and they gave promise of great usefulness to our cause. They had all worked like beavers to make my meetings a success, but unfortunately the result was not commensurate with their efforts. On the whole, however, my series of meetings in the stronghold of the Steel Trust were well worthwhile, especially because Jacob Margulis had succeeded in inducing a club of lawyers to invite me to address them. I had heretofore faced the representatives of the law only as a prisoner. On this occasion, it was my turn, not to pay back in kind, but to tell the judges and prosecutors among my hearers what I thought of their profession. I confess I did it with glee, without remorse or pity for the predicament of the gentleman who had to listen without being able to punish me even for contempt of court. My lectures in New York that winter included the subject of birth control. I had definitely decided some time previously to make public the knowledge of contraceptives, particularly at my Yiddish meetings, because the women on the East Side needed that information the most. Even if I were not vitally interested in the matter, the conviction of William Sanger and his condemnation to prison would have impelled me to take up the question. Sanger had not been actively engaged in the birth control movement. He was an artist and had been tricked by a Comstock agent into giving him a pamphlet, which his wife, Margaret Sanger, was circulating. He could have pleaded ignorance and thus avoided punishment. His bold defense in court earned him the deserved appreciation of all right-thinking people. My lectures and attempts at lecturing on birth control finally resulted in my arrest, 
whereupon a public protest was arranged in Carnegie Hall. It was an impressive gathering, with our friend and ardent co-worker Leonard D. Abbott presiding. He presented the historical aspects of the subject, while doctors William J. Robinson and J.S. Goldwater spoke from the medical point of view. Dr. Robinson was an old champion of the cause. Together with the venerable Abraham Jacobi, he was the pioneer of birth control in the New York Academy of Medicine. Theodore Schroeder and Bolton Hall illuminated the legal side of family limitation, and Anna Strunsky-Walling, John Reed, and a number of other speakers dwelt on its social and human value as a liberating factor, particularly in the lives of proletarians. Thank you for listening to She Speaks Volumes. If you would like to learn more about Emma Goldman, please check the show notes for links to her essays and other writings. The next episode is Three Guineas by Virginia Woolf, and it will be the last episode in Season 1 of She Speaks Volumes. It will be available on December the 27th. If you would like to listen to the other episodes in the She Speaks Volumes series, please visit feralculturelab.com. (laughs) 